0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Donald Trump may have been the star of the Republican nominating process in 2016, but uh, John Kasich may have been the next most important actor, even if he didn't turn out to be a supporting actor for Donald Trump. Uh, The governor of Ohio is blazing his own uh, path uh, and still— Mentioned as a potential presidential candidate, perhaps even against Donald Trump uh, in the future. He's just released a new book, Two Paths America United or Divided, uh, and came by the Institute of Politics uh, to meet with a large group of students and to sit down with us. Governor John Kasich, welcome for uh, our listeners. Uh, Governor Kasich's on the run here. So he's eating chocolate ice cream. It's very good. Uh, I'm going to ask lengthier questions so that he can finish his huh. ice cream. Uh, and then he'll give lengthy answers when he's done with his ice cream. That seems like a good deal. I'm enjoying these books.
2: On yeah, my bookshelf. John behind. Lindsay, Tip O'Neill, who I knew Tip, John McCain. Yeah. It's a great, great bookshelf. Huh? Yes, and
1: I'm going to add John Kasich to the bookshelf good. when we're good. done here. Good, um, when we talk about these uh, so-called Trump, the Trump base, the Trump voter, we're really talking about the folks that you grew up with. You grew up uh, in uh, in, Pen- in Pennsylvania, yep. right outside of Very Pittsburgh. Very blue collar, right? Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about, about where you grew up. Well, they up.
2: were kind of conservative, Demo- George Meany type Democrats, you mm-hmm. know, common sense, God-fearing, pretty conservative, you know. Um, flag uh, America you know all that kind of stuff collar. and pro-union mm-hmm. very strong for the union and um, you know the uh, they're people who I think over time have felt as though they're not respected maybe they're not uh, appreciated they are um, at risk because of their jobs and uh, and I don't want to say understand they that may, may be right about all of that yeah and they were look, and there's a strong man saying, you know, there's an element when you grow up there of people just making, you know, kind of wild statements and strong statements, and this is bad, and nobody cares, and we got to throw the whole thing out. And I think there was an element of that. And then this guy shows up, and he's got them all riled up, and he says, and by the way, I'll fix every problem you have. Just give me a chance, right? And um, and say, make America great, goes to exactly. I have never thought about this before. But Make America Great goes hand in glove with, I love my country, but I feel as though I'm getting the short end of the stick. Well,
1: don't forget the word again, because there's this sense that something has been lost. That's yeah, That was that's part right. of what made yeah. the whole thing work. And, uh, but I, I, I want to talk about Trump, but first I want to talk about Kasich. So tell me about
2: your folks and, uh, and, and how you grew up. Well, my dad carried mail. And... Uh, he, uh, came come from a big family and they had their challenges. Uh, his father was a coal miner, died of black lung. My mother, her mother was Croatian. My mother was very outspoken, smart, opinionated, undereducated. And, um, they were, uh, my mother inspired me. I, I always like to say that she was a talk show pioneer. She would listen to the radio and then scream at it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and my father had the twinkle in his eye and, um, they did never really look. They did. They. It was hard for them to understand what their son was doing. Not that they weren't smart. It was like Johnny, what are you doing? You know. And then I get elected. And, yeah. But
1: what? 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 What drew you to that? I mean,
2: what? I think wh- my mother probably. She was. Uh, you know, had all these opinions on things, and I think I found it interesting. And um, and she would give me quiet support on things I would do. And uh, you know, David, I, I can't. I remember I went to a school board meeting. We had sort of a, let um, say it called a race riot, but a, a real disturbance. And I went to the meeting, and I can remember getting Just up. Just when you were a student? Yeah, I mm-hmm. remember getting up, and I was yelling at the school board and saying, you know, now we have this big meeting, and you're now all paying attention. Where are you most of the time? And I remember leaving. I didn't think anything of it. And the next day, my father came home, and he said, Johnny, what would you do down there? And so it was a steady stream. And then, you know, I got involved in the church. And the next thing you know, I was, um, they asked me if I could run one of the services, like be a commentator as a leader <laughs> of, the, of the people. And I started speaking when I was probably, I don't know, 15 years old or something like that. So just one thing led to another.
1: One of your uh, friends some, said somewhere in an interview that you were uh, so uh, involved in the church that you thought about a, a, th- that as your career at one point.
2: Yeah, and then I figured out that I couldn't be a priest and like girls, so <laughs> that went by the wayside.
1: But the standing in front of people and speaking yeah. was something that came
2: naturally to you. Well, it's something I did, and I, David, honestly, I, what an unbelievable thing, you know, being <laughs> such a young man and standing in front of people and speaking. And one time, by the way, that I announced the closing hymn, and one thing I would not do was sing. Um, which is what I should have been doing when I think about Justin Timberlake, but I wouldn't sing. (laughs) And um, so I announced a closing hymn, and nobody was singing, and so I yelled into the microphone as the priest was coming off the altar to stopped the organ, and I gave him a lecture. I said, you know, God loves when you sing, so pick up the pages, pick up the book and turn to page 50 and sing the closing hymn. Not much more singing, and the thing ends, and I'm walking out, and the lady walks up to me, she says, you know, young man, I love to sing. Could you give us the right page the next time? (laughs) So, you know, David, never unsure, just keep moving. Yeah, yeah. Always sure and sometimes right, huh? You know, uh, when I think back to that, uh, it's just unbelievable that I've had those kinds of breaks, and one thing's kind of led to another. Well, and, tell uh, it that you, you,
1: you, we, we just s- sat with a group of students here at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics, and you told the story about your uh, your meeting with President Nixon and how that all – Came about when you were 18 years yeah. old. So I mean, share, share went, went to Ohio story.
2: State. I went in to see the president of the university in the first couple of weeks because I was upset about some things. and <laughs> You get, just went in to see the president because yeah. you were upset about some things yeah. as an 18 year old. The president
1: first, well, of Ohio I was there State. I a couple of weeks. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I did. You had a chance to size things
2: up and <laughs> well, I did. went in with your list of uh, That's concerns. That's exactly so. what happened. And, um, so he took. A, I think kind of liked me. He was intrigued, and I told him how nice his office was. And you, I was, you realize
1: how audacious that alone is. That just a well, I mean, brand new kid natural. on campus
2: it seemed kind of natural uh-huh. to do it. And um, <laughs> and then he told me he was going to go have a meeting with Nixon because so I asked him what you do as a college president. And and then he told. Me, I said I'd like to go with you and have a little chat with Nixon. And He said no. I gave him a letter, and then he gave it to Nixon. And Nixon wrote me back in a the letter in the asking White House. to. Yeah, yeah, basically for me to go
1: down and have a chat with him. And then you got to the White House, and and you were going to have your little photo op
2: with the president. And And what did they tell you? They said five minutes. I said, I'm not coming out in five minutes. So I was there 20. You know, I think back, why did he have me there? And when I think about it, this was in the fall of 1970, okay? So in the spring of 1970, we had Kent State. Yes. And so when I look back, I say, why did he do this? I think it must have been because he was trying to get an assessment of what was happening on the campus. I, I, it's the only way I could figure it out.
1: Did they think, did the visit get any publicity?
2: Got a, Yeah, I mean, it got some, you know.
1: Well, maybe part of it was he wanted to demonstrate that he was having a dialogue with a maybe, student from Ohio. Maybe.
2: I mean, I can't remember how much press, but I know it was in the, the local paper, and— um, you know, I mean the the Ohio State paper and maybe some other papers. What was your
1: the, impression of Nixon in that conversation?
2: Um, I don't remember that very well, but I did have another opportunity where I had a, a really a different, imp- I mean a real impression. In 1987, I ran into a guy who. Now you're
1: a congressman.
2: Yes, now I'm mm-hmm. a congressman. So that's uh, 17 years later. And I meet this guy at this reception, and he had an odd name. And I said, God, that name sounds for, for, so familiar. Did you know Nixon? She, he said, yeah, I, I did work for him. I said, well, wait a minute. I think I know your name. And I went to see him. I told him the whole story. And I said, do you ever see Nixon? And he said, yes. And I said, well, tell him I got to be a congressman. <laughs> so he called back a couple of weeks later. And he said, Nixon is going to be in town, and he'd like to see you. So I went to see him. And I remember the one thing he said to me is, learn foreign policy. He told me that. And then he said, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, there is. Uh, My mother and father had just been killed by a drunk driver. And my sister was having a very hard time. And I said, would you write her a letter? David, you should see the letter he wrote to her. It was unbelievable. Handwritten, a couple pages. And I mean, it was really pretty remarkable.
1: You know the thing about that. I'm sure people are listening, and everybody. You know, people in public life have whatever it is the the image they have is what how people see them. And he will forever be defined by those dark days of Watergate yep. and so on. What? Well, by the way, when when those things happen, um,
2: he'll be defined by it. But I also think that as time has marched on. People are giving him a credit for really being a brilliant man. Aside from the yeah, and you know what I think it was? I think maybe he was an insecure man. Well, that's and he was only as good as the people around him. Mm -hmm. So if he had had decent people around him, he probably would have had you know greater success. But he didn't, and he had people around him that took advantage of him, and he went down. Or maybe he
1: had people around him who would execute. You know, who knows? Yeah. But here's here's a here's um. When, when you were, when the whole Watergate thing came down, having been inspired by Nixon and having gone to see Nixon, how did you, as a young man, uh, kind of internalize all of that? Were you a Nixon person to the end, or was there, was there a point where you said, you know what, this, this troubles me?
2: No, because I can remember, first of all, because I had that meeting, I didn't go in there like with my mouth ajar. It was like, I felt like, well, I'm going in, I'm going to have a meeting with the president. And, okay, this is not that big. I never felt overwhelmed by it. And um, why? McKee's rocks. You know, everybody puts their pants on the same way. That's your hometown. Everybody kind of goes the same way. We're all equal. So respect, but not, um, you know, not like, oh, my God, this is the greatest guy or anything like that. I was there working for a Democrat at that point. When Watergate started to happen, and I remember going back in to Washington college. as an intern. Yeah, I was working for a guy who I met hitchhiking, and um, with some of my buddies. And he worked for JFK. And you know who doesn't? Who's not fascinated by that right. story? So I asked him if I could take him to lunch. He picked us up hitchhiking. like three of us, you know, and drove us down to the beach. And so I said, "Could I take you to lunch?" He said, "Yes." So I went down to see him, and we went over to a place called Duke Ziebert's, which was this Mm -hmm. really nice restaurant. And we went in, and I looked at the menu, and I looked at him, and I said, sir, I can't buy lunch. (laughs) I don't have enough money, you know? But he was a Democrat Uh and um, was very close to Lawrence Mm O'Brien. And that next summer, uh, I couldn't get a job, and he hired me. And I went down and spent time with him. And he was lobbying for the Alaskan Pipeline. So I got to meet a lot of Democrats. I think I met Tip O'Neill then. I met Bill Green. Remember, This who? is why you're still in college. I'm still in college, mm-hmm. yeah. And so it was a great experience to Jack Murtha. I got mm-hmm. to meet these guys. And, you know, it was great. That's why with young people, I try to tell them, don't be digging yourself into a ditch here and putting yourself in cement as to what your party is. You know, be, be flexible about things.
1: Well, you're also, your example... Should say to them, be audacious about looking for opportunities because you you banged down a lot of doors here. So, so so the question was on Watergate. So,
2: anyway, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of am reading about this. I go back to Ohio State and I remember telling people, I think this guy's got a real problem. So, I kind of felt it. And, um, that's all I kind of remember mm-hmm. about it. You know, I kind of remember telling people, no, this is a real problem. And I think I can vaguely remember arguing with somebody who was telling me, no, 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 no. And I said, yes, 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 yes. So it wasn't as though I had become a some sort of a, of a big admirer. But after 1987, I love to tell the story because I think it paints a part of Nixon that no one ever sees.
1: You know, you were uh, associated with a young class of Members of Congress who were inspired by Ronald Reagan, there was a big uh, difference at least in reagan's presidency in that um, you know he talked about the shining city on the hill and so on. Nixon in sixty eight um, and you know spiro Agnew uh, you know was very much a part of this did appeal to a lot of fears that people had in the country. And I wonder, as you looked at the, See, tr-
2: I can't remember that because yeah. I was too young and I yeah. really wasn't following things to. But I remember that Agnew did say something about if you've seen one, one slum, you've seen them all or so. I mean, it was, or, you know, neg- negative,
1: nattering nabobs, nabobs of negative the I mean, Pat Buchanan line. Pat Buchanan was the speechwriter who right. wrote, who wrote that line. So I didn't, I but didn't, there's been this strain in our politics that we saw in this election. And it, it it does speak to um, the fears and concerns that people have about change, about uh, opportunity, and so on. I mean, it, it's an easy thing in politics, is it not, to sort of serve pe- the Well, think pe- about Joe fears. McCarthy.
2: There's a book going to come out around Christmas written by a friend of mine uh, uh, who is, well, you, you will know. And he, he questions why Robert Kennedy was so close to Joe McCarthy. What was that all about? Mm-hmm. That was all about fear, wasn't it? So I think it's come and gone in different streams. But- yeah,
1: I just read an interesting biography of, of Bobby Kennedy, actually, by uh, Larry Ty. That uh, that that speaks to that relationship, and it's interesting the evolution that Bobby Kennedy uh, went through uh, from from those times. So anyway, you, I di- I digress from your life story. So you went back, you got involved with legislators and Well what happened
2: was I graduated from college in December and I was going to go to law school but I had to wait and I went looking for a job and I couldn't find one I walked in the legislature and got hired there and then I became an, an intern which was a big like a top A to a bunch of state senators and I did it for a while and then I quit and I ran for the state senate The guy that hired me in Washington the Democrat he made a campaign contribution to me and then when he found out I was running as a Republican he demanded his money back. Mm-hmm. But um,
1: did you give some thought to running as a Democrat? Did no, you always know you're going to no, run? As I, I really
2: never was because my view was Republicans were for maximum freedom for me—no bureaucracy, no standing in line, none of that stuff. And I kind of thought the Democrats were like, "Okay, wait in line here. We got all this stuff we're going to do," and it never appealed to me. And I—I I honestly don't know why that is because my mother, who influenced me a lot. At that point in time, I think she was a Democrat. My dad was a Democrat all of his lifetime. So why I became a Republican... I can't actually tell you what what is it that sparked that in me because I never met a Republican until I went to college because everybody in our town was a Democrat. It's kind of weird, isn't it?
1: As you say, though, there was this culture. There were culturally conservative Democrats yes. who who became what were known as Reagan. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Reagan Democrats. So you're 26 years. Old. First of all, how do you what do you what exactly were you telling people when you were 25 or 26 years old? I started
2: old? when I was about running for this job at about 24 and a half. And I knew nobody, and the party was not. But I ran in a seat that they thought was not winnable. That's why they let me be the nominee. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the party recommended me as the candidate by one vote, which is really pretty remarkable. Uh, I became. Which year was this? This would have been. Well, it probably was like in, ni- in then in 1978. Then, mm-hmm. but um, but I started the campaign sooner than that because I didn't know, didn't know anybody, and I actually got to the point. I I knew a few people in the town. Because you I, weren't from there, no. And um, I started calling. So you were
1: twenty four and a half year old kid from nowhere.
2: Yeah, that seems and like a high place call, to begin. Well, I would call people, mm-hmm. and I would say, you know, I I want to run for the state <laughs> senate. I was probably twenty five at the time, actually. I want to run for the state senate, and uh, and you know, I want to you know want to reduce taxes and create jobs and grow the economy, and I, I don't know what all I said. But it was compelling. Now, I would call out of the phone book, phone exchanges that I recognized were in a certain town. And most people would hang up. And then when they finally didn't hang up, I'd talk to them for a while. And then I'd say, could I come see you? And I'd drive to their house. And then I would ask them to get their neighbors in. And then I would go in and talk to the neighbors about who I was. And I think, I think David, it was nothing more than— <laughs> You're
1: lucky the voters would get a protection order on you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know what I think it was? I think that people thought— This is a nice, precocious young man, Uh you know, a nice-looking young man. He's got a lot of energy, and what the heck? Why not help him? Mm -hmm. And so I won this stunning victory that no one thought I could win, and there I am in the legislature. In fact, when I first went there, they thought I was a page, and some of the (laughs) members didn't like me because I was so young, and they were much older than I was. But, uh, you know, one thing I learned is when you know things, they can't question you. If you're young and you don't know what you're talking about, you have a problem. So I always tried to know what it was I was talking about because I would have more information than the other people because I'd study it. And then, you know, I could, I could fight with them the best of them, you know, including people in my party. And you uh,
1: – but you also solved your problem by not hanging around there too long uh, because you ran for Congress. Well, two, what happened was I later. lost
2: my district. Uh, well, look. What was important is my first two years, the Democrat. I beat the 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 president of the Senate's best friend, so they would they wouldn't even recognize me. Not, not happy me. with you. No, but for two years they wouldn't even recognize me. Then we begin in the majority, and I'm now the chairman of the health committee. So I made up my mind. We got to get things done. So I learned how to work with Democrats and pass legislation, and we wrote, rewrote the state's medical board bill, which was a big deal. And um, You know, I I learned how to do it. And by the way, when we took over control, the Republicans tried to have a tax increase, and I said, no, I'm not voting for it. And they called me irresponsible, so I wrote my own bill. And that's how I learned that if you know the budget, you know how things work. That's why I was interested in the budget. I don't care about numbers. It's all policy. The numbers just are a subset of the policy. So I learned how the government works.
1: Speaking about numbers, we've got to make hours. So we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Governor John Kasich. So you got redistricted out, probably in appreciation for having thrown out the uh, Senate president's best friend, and uh, you decide to run for Congress. What was that race like?
2: I was, the only, I was the only Republican in America to defeat an incumbent Democrat.
1: In 82, which was a terrible year terrible for Republicans. Year. It was the
2: first uh, midterm. But uh, I almost in lost. Year. I almost lost because of a, of a, a faux pas. And let me tell you, David, you'd you'd appreciate this. My opponent voted for the nuclear freeze. And we had the B-1 bomber being made part of it, a big chunk of it, in Columbus. So I said that because my opponent voted for the nuclear freeze, he was basically voting to kill the B-1 bomber. And so Reagan gets up and he says, his opponent, you know, this guy, he voted to kill the B-1 bomber. Well, he didn't. He voted for the nuclear free. So this guy, I'm beating him. He goes on. It did a very effective commercial, black and white. And he goes on. He goes, John Kasich and his henchmen lied to the president of the United States because I never voted against any other thing. And I like went way down, and then I squeaked it through. I came. I resur. I had a resurgence, and then I beat him. And I can remember that night, David. I can remember. Driving to the campaign headquarters, I could remember being in the car and saying to myself, "What has just happened? You mean I'm going to go to Washington? That I'm going to be a congressman and I'm going to work with presidents?" This was—it seemed like it was surreal, to be honest with you. It just was so when wild. And you were what,
1: thirty years old? Yeah. And what what did you what 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 did you learn when you got to Washington? And, and tell me a little bit about what Washington was like when you. Uh, arrived there
2: well it was people could get along now you get a, i had to get a committee assignment so i i couldn't get any committee assignments because i was a low man on the totem pole so ultimately i i figured out a way finagled a way to get on the armed services committee and i can remember my local reporter saying why would you ever want to get on that committee i said well that's like defense that's like america that should be very interesting so I got on that committee. Tip made an arrangement for me to get on there, and he added a seat. So listen to this. I go on this little tour of my of my district, and I go to this Air Force station, and I'm with this colonel, and he's getting ready to retire, and we do a nice tour. And I'm sitting in his office. Why this happened, I don't know. I said, I'm getting ready to leave. Is there anything you'd like to tell me? i never ask anybody that. You know, I said, is there anything you'd like to tell me? He said, well, there is. And he pulled his drawer open, and he goes, you see this wrench? I sa- he said, what do you think I paid for it? I, was, I said, I don't know, a dollar and a quarter? He goes, $10,000. Then he pulls out this hammer and all this stuff. This was a part of the Stitbear Parts scandal. Uh-huh. So I get all this stuff that he has, and I go down to Washington, and I go in to see Bill Nichols, conservative Democrat from Alabama, had mm-hmm. his leg blown off in a war in World War II, and I take all these tools in there, and I go, I sit in his office, and I show him all this stuff, and he's he's got his glasses on, and he, he doesn't know what to say, and he pulls his glasses down over his eyes just like this, and he looks at me he says, "Your mama, she doesn't have any more like you at home, does she? <laughs> and it was part of that whole spare parts investigation yeah. where I learned a lot mm-hmm. about the military, about the Pentagon. I learned a lot, and... Um, you said people could get And I learned a lot about the fact that sometimes did people didn't tell you what the truth was.
1: And uh, you said people got along back then. Why did people get along back then and what happened?
2: Part of it I think was the Democrats ran everything. So it was a comfortable situation. And you know, we I never thought of they it. They didn't anything. run the White House. No, but they ran the Congress. So Mm -hmm. all the appropriations and all that stuff, they'd get 90 and the Republicans would get some crumbs. And Mm -hmm. I never thought of it that way because I had such a beautiful relationship with the Democrats on the Armed Services Committee because there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. My problem, I became a cheap hawk. And I started to say, we need to make sure we clean up the Defense Department. And the Republicans really resented it. I mean, they really resented what I was saying. I got to admire Les Aspin, who was a great leader of our committee, a brilliant strategist and a terrible secretary of defense, but really, really a a terrific guy. And I learned a lot from, you know, and then I, when I found the spare parts and everything, I got on the conference committee as a freshman. So I go to the first conference committee meeting unless, and we're talking now ancient history. So I hope no young people are listening, but there was John Tower and Barry Goldwater and John Stennis and Gary Hart and Teddy Mm -hmm. Kennedy. I mean, it was like being looking in a history book, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and what's his name from South? Strom Thurmond. Mm-hmm. I mean, one time I was sitting in there. I'm I'm 30 years old. You know, maybe he was 31 at that point, And and I look at him. All I said, I look. I feel like I'm looking at a history book. You know, um, it was an amazing experience.
1: You said that out loud. How'd they take it?
2: They didn't like that. They kind of, like, <laughs> resented it, you know? you know? So
1: let me ask you, you, you know, you, I remember you as a, a young—you uh, you were a very—because you, you, were, you were valuable then as you are now. You were on television a lot. You were talking about uh, stuff. And one of the things that was said was that you were kind of an irascible guy. And I'm wondering— What does that mean? Uh,
2: edgy. Yeah. Well, you know, when you, irritable from, yeah, sometimes. when you come from— Irritable Yeah, you come from Key's Rocks, where nobody ever gets anything— You fight your way up through the top. You Mm -hmm. were saying I was audacious. Well, hell yes. If I wasn't audacious, I'd still be living in McKee's Rock.
1: You tried. I saw one one time you... Unless this is, I saw you tried to fight your way onto the stage at a Grateful Dead concert. No,
2: well, that's a little, that's a little bit of a, of a misnomer. But it was a. It's great too good. Story. A, don't
1: don't ruin my story. No, I my, love this story.
2: I'll tell you. And they they put it in USA Today. They had this thing called the Congressman and the Dead. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was at home, and she saw this CNN story about. <laughs> here I was, at a Grateful Dead concert. She called me up. She said, "What the hell are you doing down there?" <laughs> But, no, I would say, David, that— Well, what uh, happened at the
1: Grateful Dead concert? Well,
2: look, I, I got a call from a friend of mine by the name of Dwight Yoakam, who was a country yeah, sure. star. And I knew Dwight, and he called me up, and he said, I'm opening for the Grateful Dead at RFK. And I said, D- Dwight, something happened to the telephone, because <laughs> I, I didn't understand this. I'm, he says, well, come yeah, and so, see so, so, me, because I'm opening up, for you the talk Dead. About, you talk about crossing lines of— Exactly. Yeah. So I said, I'm not going. And he says, I'm going to send a car, because you're going to come see me perform. So I went backstage and they got me passes and everything. And so Dwight performed. I was on the side of the stage. You know, these stages are very big. Yes. And uh, we, I went in his into his dressing room and he said, I'm leaving. And I said, well, I'm not leaving. I've never seen the Grateful Dead, really. So I'm going to stay. So I had all these passes. I tried to get back up on the stage and the guy's yelling at me and... I'm like, no, no, you know, it's not, it's like loud at a concert, right? (laughs) So some Washington Post reporter said, you know, I don't know what you were doing. You got kicked off the stage at a Grateful Dead concert, and that's really the story. So uh,
1: on this notion of audacious, you left Congress and you ran for president in 2000.
2: Well, you got to remember, I also became, got on the budget committee and started offering budgets against my own president, and I fought for ten years to get us to a balanced budget. At the same time I was trying to limit the production of the B Two bomber. At the same time I was trying to reform welfare for the for the corporate welfare for the rich and I worked with Ralph Dater and I mean it was really a a great you, a Did great, you meet him at the Grateful Dead concert? I did or? not. But he did sing a little bit but when he was on Sesame Street he did sing a song. And that was really great. It's too bad it wasn't recorded. But David I would say that in that, you know, I had to be really pretty darn aggressive. Because if I wasn't, I've always been an iconoclast. And and so, you know, but so, I think... So what made
1: you decide to leave Congress and run for president?
2: Because I was done with Congress. I'd got the budget balanced. We'd limited the production of the B2. It, it The campaigns were getting increasingly negative. And, um, it, you know, it was just, it was a grind. And the guy who was my chief of staff, who had helped me in my first campaign... He and I talked, and I decided, like in 1996, I really didn't have many more campaigns in me, so I left. And he and I kind of said, "Yeah, let's get the hell out of town." So we left, and um, I was really sick and tired of uh, of the place. And look, in anything in life, you go up; it's better to get out on your way up than on your way down. Mm-hmm. So um, I never knew that I was going to the campaign for president was you know it was ridiculous. And what I found out is these guys that talked me into it. And, look, I had some good supporters. I had Don Fierce, who's a great political strategist. I think you probably know who he is. Mm-hmm. Eddie Gillespie was my press yeah. guy. I mean, I even had the press guy for uh, for Rubio this last time, uh, Todd Harris. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I had guys from the White House. Uh, I mean, it was – but I, could, I didn't raise any money. It was it was ridiculous. But – so I just moved yeah, on. Yeah,
1: a couple other guys named Bush and McCain in that race yeah, as well. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I just couldn't get anywhere. And I'll tell you what. There was an early poll that showed me starting to rise in New Hampshire. It was when the war started in Kosovo. And I remember flying on the plane, and McCain was on wall-to-wall coverage. And all of a sudden, I told my people, I said, you know, this isn't going to work because he's, he's sucking all the oxygen out of right. the room. So it got down to McCain and Bush. And then Bush considered me for vice president. And then he called me, and he said, the problem is if you and I run together, we're likely to blow the roof off of any place we walk into. <laughs> so um, – that was an interesting thing because I endorsed Bush, and frankly, I really should have endorsed McCain. And I don't know why I did that, and I've had to apologize to well, John. Well, you made up
1: for it by voting for him in the last election. Well, right?
2: I know, but I was a few years there where I think he was pretty angry at me, although he'd never admit it, but mm-hmm. he, I think he was. But anyway, I, lo- I love John. So and then I, you, I, yeah.
1: you, you spent uh, you spent the next so many years in the investment banking business. Yeah, I worked for and Lehman, Lehman Brothers. Brothers. And as that as was a, very
2: hard. And and, uh, at Fox Fox. News. Yeah, I did that. I had a speaking career. I wrote another book, bestseller, I think, or two. And then I also taught. I did a lot of academia. I was at three different universities on a short-time basis. I served on some boards. I was really, really busy. And um, the Lehman Brothers thing was really amazing because they expected me to get up there, and I don't know what the hell they expected. But I told him, I said, I'm not giving you any Rolodex. I want to be involved. I want to learn the business. I had to take all the tests. And I want to be, and what I found in that job is that I could do things peer-to-peer where they couldn't because bankers tend to be suck-ups, and I wasn't. I could tell a a CEO, what are you doing here, you know? Now, I wasn't going to crank out all the numbers, but, you know, I, I, I had, I think, a pretty significant impact. In terms of being in a management and all that, I, I these guys yeah. didn't.
1: Somebody needed to tell them. Lehman Brothers obviously ran into trouble. Somebody needed to tell them the subprime stuff.
2: Yeah, but see, I wasn't doing not that, good. David. I No, I it was. It, and most people would think a guy like me would come out. I'd be sitting in the boardroom. That's not what it was like. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't even respect a former politician.
1: What What happened, though? I mean, not just, well, they not just much about Lehman Brothers, yeah, but in the them. industry. Yeah. Greed.
2: Greed. they they kept taking all these bad loans and packaging them together and selling them, and all this it was just like it was like stacking one chair on top of another. Where you know the first four might work, but when you get up to about twelve, it's about time for the for the uh, chairs to tip over.
1: I know you were in a, doing other things there, but did you know? Did could you? No, did I people just didn't. sense that this was happening.
2: Well, I can remember when the stock was well over a hundred and it started dropping, and. Um, and I was in. See, I didn't even work in New York, really. I worked in a two-man office in in Columbus, and I would I could talk to a few people in Chicago, and they said, "Well, this is all going to be okay," and then and then it went under, you know, and we we all lost a lot. Um, did I understand that? No, I probably I did not really get exactly what was happening.
1: So there's all this uh, clamor right now about regulation. Presumably, there is a need for some of that.
2: Yeah, there is
1: to try and yeah. make sure that that stuff these credit
2: default st- swaps which are you know they're they're just all risky things and yeah I think there is a legitimate need for regulation but if you go too far I think Dodd Frank went so far you haven't seen any little banks get created here and that's not good community banks little banks they're they're glue in our community mm-hmm. so if they were going to they needed to fix this this whole thing of Dodd Frank, but they don't need to. They don't need to get rid of all of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, on Fox News, real yeah. quick, because I want to talk about your book and I want to talk about where we are today. Um, y- you know, um, you talk in your book uh, two paths: America divided or united. New book, great read. I hope people pick it up um, about uh, the media climate in which we're in. Fox is very much a part of that media climate. There are uh, you know, there are outlets on the left and right.
2: David, it was so un- unusual when I was there. The first thing, how did I get this job? Well, I went around to all the networks. I said, I'd like to do a show on heroes. And they go, well, well why would we put you on? CNN blew me off. MSNBC really didn't even give me the time of day. Uh, PBS, forget it. And I did not know Roger Ailes. And I walked in. Ohio the- guy. I didn't know him. I walked into his office and I said, I'd like to do a television show on heroes and uh, I don't want to do anything political. And he goes, uh, okay, uh, well I'll give you a one-year contract. We'll test you out. What, what should we pay you? So I gave him a number. He goes, no, that's ridiculous. We're not paying you that. So he gave me a difference. I didn't have an agent or anything. So I did it for a year. Then they hired me on, I don't know, two or three consecutive three-year contracts. I had my own show for four and a half years that I did basically from Columbus called Heartland. It was on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And then I hosted O'Reilly for about, I don't know, eight or nine years. In fact, they called me to host O'Reilly when I was still in Congress. And I even hosted Chris Matthews' show when I was in Congress. I have no idea. They haven't
1: called you recently about that, have they? Because, you know, there's an opening there recently. Well, the
2: problem is that um, when I was there, David, this is what's really interesting. Whenever I would host a show, it was always you had to find the other point of view, it was never that you could go on there and get somebody that would agree with you. And so it changed over time when the host started getting people to become sycophants for their point of view.
1: Well, TV became a little bit more, Fox you know, certainly became more like radio.
2: Yeah, I mean, but when I was there, I did, it wasn't like that. I mean, I never did O'Reilly whenever I had a guest on there to say, oh, yeah, I agree with you. It was always contentious. That's what made it so hard, because I would basically study up on the show. I, w- I, would help pick, I would help pick the subjects when I did O'Reilly, and then I would study on the show for a few, two, three hours, and then I would debate people. And I mean, I'm debating lawyers on complicated legal cases. I'm not even an attorney. It really was an intellectual challenge, the mm-hmm. same way that Lehman Brothers was an intellectual challenge. You really had to expand yourself. And I got to be pretty good at it by the end, because what you learn in television is you have to let go. I mean, it's like learning to swim. If you don't let go, you won't be good. But letting go is hard when you're doing television, because I was—I that's what it was, was about. That was the biggest challenge. And then I really, I did enjoy it. But when I decided to form an exploratory committee, I had to leave, and I did. Do you
1: think um, that, uh, well, let me take a short break, and, and we'll be right back with uh, Governor Kasich. Do you think that um, how much responsibility do these uh, this does the sort of polarization of media? I of think Fox News deal. contributed to our sort of the intolerant nature of our
2: politics. Well, but everybody yeah. is trying yeah, to I'm find not, yeah. their little their little groove. And um, but I, David, I think there's a responsibility of people not just to make money, but to contribute to the to the discourse. And if all you want to do is to narrow yourself, then you ought to say it. I guess. But I don't know why you'd want to do that. Um, but I mean, it's all about audience. It's all about ratings. It's all about money. And uh, Michael Novak, the great theologian who we have just mm-hmm. recently lost, said that any free enterprise system that is not underlaid by a set of values is bankrupt. And I think sometimes our media is chasing dollars now, and they're, I think many of them feel like they are that they are they were walking, 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 and they were slipping into a into a big deep cave. And they were grabbing onto the sides, tearing out their fingernails, trying to figure out how to survive. And when people get like that, it's pretty – it's crazy. And now, of course, they're all making so much money because yeah. of what they call – what they call it now, the Trump bump. I just well, heard yeah, that because phrase Donald today. Trump
1: understands that media environment probably as well as anyone else. I mean he came out of that yep. environment. And certainly he has no problem in letting go, as you say. And his ability to command that environment without any guardrails or concern uh, was part of the key to his success. It
2: was totally remarkable. I mean, if I said some of the things that he said, I would I would be I would have been run out of Ohio. I mean, it's I I cannot explain it. Maybe you can explain it, but I don't understand how people looked the other way and didn't care about some of these very incendiary things and. Uh, that were said, and in the way it, it point not only him but others behaved.
1: So, what does it say about our political environment that uh, that he won, and where are we going with it now? Because he hasn't really changed. I mean, he's approaching the presidency in much the way he approached his campaign. You commented when we were talking to the students about your concern about his remarks the other night in Pennsylvania, in Harrisburg on his hundredth day anniversary and how divisive those remarks were?
2: I don't know where we're going, to tell you the truth. I mean, his supporters are rock solid, but they're not a vast number. I mean, it's certainly not half the country. Uh, What I have found as I travel around on this book, or when I just travel around, period, is that people come to me, and many of them are just almost begging me to get, to to run run again. You know, they're just like, we believe, I mean, there is a there is a certain passion connected to it that has—I've now gotten used to it, but in the beginning, kind of shocked me. You agree with that? I've got a friend sitting in the studio with me, uh, David. It's—it's it's been um, his friend
1: is nodding for those of you who well, can't it, see.
2: You know, but he always nods because he's my friend. Right? No, but not necessarily. But I have been. I have, You're David, not the disrupter. I have group, been I taken away. I've been. I fr- I don't think people want that. I don't think his people want it. His people may want to take these strong positions, but these polls indicate that everybody would like to see people get along better. But we're not getting along in it. You know, the whole the whole society is fighting. Well, let me you out.
1: beg the question about people begging you. So let me beg you for an answer, which is how seriously are you entertaining this? Or, and can you see a, a scenario under which you would be a candidate again?
2: I, you know, look. I, yeah, well, that would have to be I, 2020 you, probably. Uh, look. My folks advise me because my inclination is to say I'll never run for anything again, okay? And they say, why do you say that, John? You don't know what the future is going to be. And um, they're right. So I don't know. I'm not, am I planning for it? No. Do I have a political organization still active? Yes. Why? I want to have a team of people that can help me to have an effective voice. Because when you're talking about complicated issues like North Korea or you're talking about health care, you're talking about any of these things, you don't want to just talk you want to know what you're talking about and therefore you have to have a team and how do you get your voice into the media? How do you do that? I mean, it takes effort
1: but there is this anticipation that it's possible that you could run that is part of the interest that you yeah, draw when you're out there.
2: I think that I I think that's right. The question is you know because I've thought about this can you be an important voice without holding public office? And when I think about it, well, We know what Al Gore's done, but he was vice president. I mean, he changed the whole business of the environment. Colin Powell, does he have a lot of say? I think so. Robert Gates? Yeah. I mean, I think there are some, but I think it's extremely difficult to maintain a voice if you're not holding an office. Now, you're trying to do that. You have a voice, and you know it's difficult. But, you know, can it be done? We're sure as heck going to give it the best we can to see if it's possible.
1: Let me just ask you about health care. You've been an opponent of the health care bill that's been moving through the House in various iterations. And I want to ask you about a specific part of it. I know it's the Medicaid piece that is particularly concerning to you. But you have some personal History, and you mentioned some of it uh, about your parents being uh, killed by a drunken driver, right. um, and I know that you have other family members who've dealt with mental right. health issues right. um, are these uh, and you've been very active on these issues as
2: governor not 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 on the drunk driving thing I mean look I, but uh, but on but like I,
1: substance abuse yeah, on mental not, health not issues cause
2: not necessarily because I've been personally touched by it I mean i don't have any disabled children, but yet I have passion about it. And um, look, when I look at the health care bill, here's what I think about. I think, what would it be like if I didn't have any health care? And so I figure if it would be a nightmare for me, I know it's a nightmare for others. What can I do while I'm in power to get something done to let people feel some sort of confidence? And that's why I've done what I've done, because I think that getting people this health care in a comprehensive way makes sense. And so I'm not, I mean, I'm concerned about the Medicaid, but I'm also concerned about the exchanges. I don't want to see them collapse. That's how a lot of people who are above 138% of poverty are getting help. And I don't want, you know, Robert Taft, Mr. Republican, Mm -hmm. you know. An Ohioan, yeah. Yeah, 1939 to 1953. Ran for the nomination for president against Eisenhower and lost. You know what he said? He said, "Any in our country, our great country of America, if somebody can't afford health insurance, we ought to give it to them. Now, somehow, because I care about these folks and I expanded Medicaid, that somehow I'm not a Republican or a conservative. That's—I think it's total nonsense. But you know what? That's the way it goes.
1: Yeah, but it does speak to—I uh, mean, you—you you were uh, considered a leading House conservative when you were well, yeah, in, but, in the but, Congress, but—but but, yeah. but, the—the question is. Uh, not whether you have evolved, but whether the party has shifted away.
2: Well, I think there's a little of both. I think I have evolved a little bit, but I would also tell you that back when we were reforming welfare, I said if we're going to reform welfare for for poor people, we ought to reform welfare for rich people. So there's always been an element of that, David. And when you come from the Rocks, you know, quickly, my mother one time went up to check on us getting these pony rides up at the schoolhouse, and I got one, and she gave the guy that was offering them, uh, more money than, the, than it costs for the ride, and I said to my mother, "Why did you give him all that money?" She said, "Johnny, did you notice his eye? I mean, he needs our help. I mean, we we don't have a lot of money, but you know what? He needs something, so we're going to help him. So that sense of fighting for the underdog, that sense of uh, of sticking up for people who other people don't stick up for, I I think I grew up with that, and you know, and I'm proud of that.
1: Uh, let me ask you about Trump yeah. as a as, you didn't vote for him. Nope. That was very public. Um, is there anything that uh, in the last 100 days that makes you rethink that position?
2: No, no. I mean, now I'm going to be for him because I, he's president. I mean, I was for I, – I support presidents, but that doesn't mean – and I've, I've always supported presidents, but that doesn't mean I go along with them on everything. So I've been critical – Look, I voted against U.S. troops in Lebanon when Ronald Reagan was president. I offered my own budget against George Bush, the senior, when he was president. Um, there, I, I'm not going to, you know, with Bill Clinton, I had my differences with him. But that doesn't mean I have to root against them or hate them or not have any respect for them. One of the greatest outrages that I've ever seen in politics is when that one guy, congressman, Yelled when Barack mm-hmm. Obama was making a state of the state or state of the union speech, and yelled "you lie" and yeah, turned I around the, the next. I was there that day. Then turned around the night. next day and sent out an email raising money for what his behavior—disgraceful. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he went to a town hall meeting and they were all yelling at him, "You lie." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, the arc of justice sometimes takes time, doesn't it?
1: So you're done with your term. Uh- in 2019, I guess you'll leave office in January. Yeah. Is that when you? Uh, and uh, what? How, what do you? How do you see yourself spending your time in the? I. I in the-
2: you mean for the next 18 months? No, I mean after. I don't know. Um, I just don't know. I really. I have not really spent a lot of time about it. I have a great friend that says, "John, just finish your job, keep your mind off of it." And and I, by and large, have. I don't. I think. Here's what I know that I have to have a strong finish to my. For, so for my own self, you know, respect and all that, which I'm going to do. And, um, and I just don't know. I, th- I hope things will come my way, but there's nothing more ex or more former than a politician.
1: Yeah, although this is pr- pr- propitious timing, because the midterms will be over and you'll really be able to assess what the political climate of the country is.
2: Yeah, but I don't think that I'm not waiting for that so I can figure out my political stuff. I do want to keep a voice. I do want to assemble a team. And uh, but you never want to say never to anything. You never know. I mean, I'm still thinking maybe I'll get on the PGA tour and not the Senior Tour. I mean, that's how. Well, that's how I look at life.
1: If that happens, I'd forego the presidential yeah, race exactly. if I were you. Okay. The book is too. You paths. can caddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that. Uh, you'll you play some nice courses. You know, definitely. one
2: story I haven't told you is that I played golf with President Obama and John Boehner and Joe Biden, and when we finished. We were sitting having a drink over at the at the um, uh, Andrews Air Force Base. And I looked up around and I said, Boehner, you know, you're the Speaker of the House. I mean, your father owned a bar. I mean, come on, man, that you're here. And I looked at Biden. I said, you, Vice President? Now, let's come on with that. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at the President and I said, and you, President of the United States and me? God, this is unbelievable. I said, so obviously the Lord had a purpose for us. Why don't you guys sit down and figure things and that is what commenced those negotiations with President Obama and John Boehner. Now they never concluded it, which was a shame, but that's an interesting story, and that was a way in which people can get the better and better get together and think of themselves as human beings rather than as political enemies
1: It's also a reflection. Of the greatness of this country because every single one of you in some way came from immigrant families who ended up making great contributions to this country. As I came from an immigrant family, my father was an immigrant. So uh, we all share something that's larger than party, which is, of course, the Thrust of your book, Two Paths, America Divided or United. John Kasich, thanks so much, not just for being here, but for visiting with our students at the great University of Chicago. Great time. It's been a great time. It's policies. great to be with you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you,
0: David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit CNN.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.